morning, everybody. How are you? It's going to be what Masechet are we in? Yuma, Daf Yud Beis Bezrat Hashem. But we start on Yud Aleph Amud Beis. Remember yesterday we mentioned the city of Mechoz, I believe it was. I didn't remember where it was. There's a big Jewish history with regards to it. It's one of the big cities in Bavel. Uh, you've heard of Sur and Pumpadisa and Naharda. And eventually, those yeshivas uh, ended up moving to Mechoza. It's uh, a lot of Jewish history to look into there. Rava was the Rosh Yeshiva. So much to say, but it's not in, 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 in Spas. It's not near Yerushalayim. It's in Bavel. Okay. So, but we have a lot of work to do. I think it makes sense to start uh, 15 lines up from where the lines get wide in Yudalf and Bezer, it says Kippah. We have basically like a self-contained little topic here for eight lines that'll get us right into our topic, which, so Kippah, the question was, what is the halacha of a archway, whether we get a mezuzah in there? So, um, so we says over here, Kippah, my, Right? So do you see, Rabbi Meir Mechaib Mezuzah, the Chachamim Potrim. Right? So a kippah in this context is a, um, an archway. And the question is, does it have a mezuzah? So you might ask, why would it not have a mezuzah? So let's lay it out and then it'll go real quick. In order to require a mezuzah, you need to have a doorway. And that doorway needs to have a minimum dimension. Which is ten tefachim tall and four tefachim wide. It's as simple as that. If it's smaller than that, it doesn't get a doorway. So let's say you had a doorway that if you were to square it off in a rectangular fashion, right, as you see right over here next to the Rashi. So let's say that that, that you see that square with the inscribed, right, uh, the inscribed archway. So if that um, rectangle, it was 10 tefachim high and 4 tefachim wide, so then that's where the machlokis is, because after all, the actual entranceway is going to be less than 4 tefachim wide and 10 tefachim tall, because as you can see, there's extra room over there. Meaning there, it's taking up some of the room for the decorative archway over there, and it, it, had it been entirely squared off, it would be meet the minimum requirement, and it would require a mezuzah. But because there's this decorative archway and extra building material, so it becomes smaller than the minimum shear, and then that becomes the machlokes. That in that situation, do we view it as if it's chokakim, which means as if it's carved out to fill out the entire right dimensions of that squared off rectangular archway, or do we view the archway as it is, and so that becomes the machlokas. If we view it as if it's carved out, so then it will be big enough to meet the minimal requirements, and it will require mezuzah, ikar hadin, and if not, so then it won't. So that's what we read over here. So that's the machlokas. Does an archway of that kind require mezuzah? So, that's where it says over here, the Shavin, that right, both, right, they were both agree that the Chacham and Reb Meir, right, so obviously if the archway itself was a giant archway, so then it would require mezuzah. In other words, there's nothing about an archway that makes it not chayev and mezuzah. One could have argued, oh, if it's only 
if it's a proper squared off rectangular doorway, will it require a mezuzah? You could have said that. That's not the issue. The issue isn't the archway. The issue is if it's, if the archway compromises the dimensions. That's all it's saying. So if it has enough, right, ten tfachim at its base or whatever, that, then it's for sure going to require a mezuzah. And now we're just going to Chazer Erevin Dafiralev, where we had the same dispute, 13 lines up from the wide, where it says like this, Amar Abaye. Right, so everyone will say, what's Ein Biragla Shlosha? That if it doesn't have, um, so in other words, the, the opening width has to be at least four Tfachim. So if there isn't at least three Tfachim, right, let's say the archway started already tapering inward, uh, right at the, right at the base, right at the floor. And there was never a point where there was fourth fucking width, so everybody would agree, Vilav Klumhi, that that's not a big enough opening. Or Inami Yesh Beragla Shlosha. What's the Shlosha? It's three Tfachim. In other words, it has to have at least three Tfachim worth, right? Because don't forget, Lavud, anything that's less than three Tfachim is considered negligible. And therefore, if it's less than three uh, Tfachim, you're not going to, right, consider it. And therefore, it's going to be, you need at least three Tfachim where it has that four with, and and everybody would also agree that let's say there is at least three tfachim worth going up the sides of this opening that's four tfachim wide, but it never makes it to the top. In other words, the apex of the archway is less than 10 tfachim high. So then for sure, it's not going to be big enough because after all, there, there's no way that you can right configure this in, um, such that it meets the minimum required Requirement of ten tefachim high because even at, at its apex it's not ten tefachim high. So that's v'lav klumhi. That everyone agrees is not going to require meikar din mezuzah. However, lo nechlaku ela bigvah sar v'yesh In the case where the apex of the archway is ten tefachim high, and in fact there's at least three tefachim on the sides, um, meaning meaning three tefachim of height that's at least four tefachim wide, right at the bottom, ve'ein berachva arba. Uh, and the situation basically is that it comes up being the requisite width. And then at the apex, it's the requisite height. But from the, from as it goes up towards the requisite height, it just tapers in. That's where the machlokus is. That it technically would have the requisite height because the apex is high enough. And it would have the requisite width because at least three tfachim worth of height on the sides, it's wide enough. It's just that it tapers. That's where the machlokas is regarding the archway, and the machlokas is Rabbi Meir Savar Chokakin Lahashmin Lahashlim, the Rabbanan Savri Ain Chokakin Lahashlim, and the machlokas just is when you have this kind of taper, do you chokakin? Do you carve it out? Do you pretend as if it's carved out? And if it were carved out, it would have the requisite dimensions. So Rabbi Meir says you pretend like it were carved out into its full squared off dimensions, and therefore it requires a din, and the Rabbanon hold that you don't do that, and therefore uh, the archway as it is with all the taper is actually smaller than the requisite um, doorway, and therefore it does not require a Good. Fascinating topics. I promised Barry today it was going to be great. So here we go. Seven lines up from the wide. Tanar Rabbanon. Beis haknesses uveis ha'isha uveis ha'shutafin chayeves b'mezuzah. This is being presented as a chiddush. Yesterday I stumbled. I said, does the shul require mezuzah? We, well, I, I know that it doesn't, but yet all the shuls do. Well, do they or do they not require mezuzah? So let's see. 
So what the Brisa here is saying is that the Beis HaKnesses does require a mezuzah. And Beis HaIsha means a house that is owned by a woman. Okay, so if you have a house that's owned uh, by a woman, right, she's the owner of it, it requires a mezuzah. Why would you think it wouldn't? We have neighbors where the house is owned by a woman and she lives there with her children. Uh, very wonderful neighbors. And would you say that her house doesn't require a mezuzah? That seems, that seems uh, impossible. Obesa Shutfin is an, an owned house. Um, I've been meaning to tell you, Barry and Andrew, they've patched it up, thank God, and now they have real estate together. Do, do, do the houses that Barry and Andrew bought together um, as a, right, as a group, do they require mezuzah? Well, in all those cases, you would think, of course, all those, except for maybe a shul, all those require mezuzah. So let's see. The Gemara says, Pshita, it's obvious they require mezuzah. Andrew and Barry buy a house together and they both own it. They wouldn't put a mezuzah? Of course they would. So the Gemara answers, well, look at the Pasuk. We say it every single day, right? That you have to put, right, the mezuzahs on Beisecha. Beisecha sounds says the Gemara, Beisecha velo Beisa. Beisecha sounds like you're talking to a person who owns it, a singular person, right? It, not, it could be a married uh, uh, male, but it's a male, a single male, not a group of people, not a shul, but a house, and it belongs to one male. Okay, that's who owns it. So that's what Beisecha sounds like. Beisecha velo Beisa, Beisecha velo Batehem. Right? Kamash Malan, the Bryce is teaching us that no, that the way you read the Pasuk, when it says, it, you don't apply it the way it may sound. It may sound that it only if Andrew owns it by himself, it's Chayv and Mezuzah. No, you do not apply it that way. Even if it's jointly owned like a shul, or a group, or a woman, it's still Chayv and Mezuzah. Says the Gemara, however, and say, well, maybe it should be owned. Uh, maybe it should be read that way. Maybe the Pasuk should be read Kemashmao. And in fact, those kinds of houses should not require mezuzah. So to that, the Gemara says, The Pasuk later says, with respect to mezuzah, if you do that uh, halacha, then you should merit long life. Well, uh, should only men be entitled to long life? Says the Gemara. What, women don't like long life? If If people have... Right, a group. They don't want long life. Everybody does. So that sounds like a very inclusive term. And from that, they learned that in fact, all of those scenarios would, ref- in fact, require a mezuzah. So then the Gemara asks, "Beis Then why does it say beisecha? Why does the pasuk say it that way to make it seem like only if a single male owns the house does it require a mezuzah?" So the Gemara answers, "Kid Rava to teach you the halacha of Rava, which actually is teaching you not." Who has a chiyuv in mezuzah, but rather the placement of the mezuzah on the doorway. The amarava derech biascha, beisecha sounds like biascha, and therefore it's almost like a play on words. Why it would be like that? Obviously, you would need to have a mesora to understand it that way. This is not the pashup shot, but derech biascha, the flow of traffic. How do you determine this is hilchos mezuzah? How do you determine where to put the mezuzah? Well, how do you know to put it on the right side or the left side? Says the Gemara. Continues. When a person walks into a house, he puts his right foot forward first. It's nice to put forward. When Andrew on his uh, Gelt videos, he likes to tell people to make a good first impression to put their right foot forward first. So that's how you. That's why it's on the right side. But on which side, right? Let's say you have two rooms in a house, 
and you are supposed to put it in the entranceway. But how do you know which is the entranceway? It could go either way. It's a two-way street. So the answer is, in the entranceway to your house, it's obvious. But otherwise, in your house, that's, that's a big aspect of Hilchas Mezuzah, is which is the flow of traffic. And you follow the flow of traffic, and you put the mezuzah on the right side as you enter accordingly. Okay. This question about uh, male and female. Yes. Right. Uh huh. What in the mitzvah of achalat? So, so uh, Barry's asking an amazing question. He's saying, you know, all these. Uh, there's so many other examples of psukim that make it sound like it's speaking to one male, a group of males, and you could ask it so many times with respect to whether it applies to women. Why are we not? Uh, why, why are we not doing it in those other cases? Why Dafka Mezuzah are we bringing it up? That's a good question. I don't, um, we'd have to look at specific examples and see maybe those examples are different or maybe this example is different. The truth of the matter is that this is rhetorical, right? In other words, it's rhetorical because of course the women are chayev. The question is why are we having this rhetoric here and not elsewhere? So that's a good question, but maybe it'll satisfy you to see that we're about to bring it up in another context. <laughs> it doesn't satisfy you. But look at this. Same question with regards to bias, you know? Maybe it has to do, like, this is going to be more homiletics, right? But we know that Isho Zubeso uh, and bias. I don't know. I'm just saying we're we going to have another example now where the word bias sounds like it's referring to a male. Maybe it's a chauvinistic thing. I don't know. But it's just like bias sounds like it's male-owned, right? Certainly in those days... Property was owned by women, but it was much more commonly owned by men. Um, and so maybe bias in that context, because of that, uh, the ownership of, of a property may, would have been assumed more to be owned by a man. But that's a good question. Whatever, whatever answer I'm going to give you is not going to be as good as the question, so I have to look into it. Uh, but that's what Barry points out. But uh, what he's really trying to do is segue, I think, into this next question, which is a fascinating question. We just spoke about bias with respect to mezuzah. Now we're going to ask it with respect to nagayim. As we know, a human being can have tzaras on their skin, because we read Tazriya Mitzorah last week. Dafyomi coincidence. I mean, we're used to it being more exquisitely timed, so the fact that it was less than a week ago is like not even moving the needle for us. But the mitzorah can have tzaras on his skin, on the beged, and on the house. Houses can get tzaras. The question, we're going to now pose the same question posed by mezuzah, we're going to ask it by houses. Does a house that's owned by a woman, can that house get tzaras? Can a shul get tzaras? Let's see. Tanya idach, we learned in another b'risa, first wide line. So we have a b'risa that sure, a shul or a house that's owned by a woman or by a group can, in fact, get saras. Pshita says the Gemara, of course we get saras. So the Gemara says, Right, when it describes when there's saras, it says, Uva asher lo habais. This is even a little bit more explicit. It sounds like this house is owned by one single male. So maybe this partially, again, answers Barry's question. The psukim sound like they're talking about male. Barry says all the psukim also sound like they're talking about males. But here it's really more explicit. It sounds like a narrative, like that dude who has a house comes and he has Taras in his house. It's low la. It really sounds, I mean, that's grammatically very male over there. Lo velo lahen. It's also very singular. 
Kamash Malan, that no, that even though it sounds like one dude is coming to the Kohen and his house has Tsaras, it would be true if a woman or if a group of people had this house. Okay, which leads to the question of Eima So there too, maybe they can't get Tsaras. So Amar Kra, so you could have said, well, it happened, you know, one time, right, uh, congregation, whatever, had Tsaras. Uh, but it doesn't say that. It's talking more about theoretical. Well, the Pasuk says explicitly that it's in the la- house that's in the land of your inheritance. Uh-huh. So anybody who is entitled to inheritance, which as we know from and from everyone, that it was inherited sort of like as a collective and also for women. So to that, the Gemara says, So why does it say, Why does it have that narrative in the male singular form? So the Gemara says, it's to teach you a Garanowitz Musr moment. The profile of an individual. This, who is this Lo? He's a person. Literally, to teach you a Musr Shmuz. That's what those, every little word in the Torah is a Musr Shmuz. What's this Musr Shmuz? Somebody used to come to this, people used to come to this guy's house. They wanted to borrow eggs, they wanted to borrow a lawnmower. They wanted to maybe borrow some money. And this guy kept saying, I don't have eggs. I don't have a lawnmower. I don't have money. He was a not, he has a, he had an attitude, as it says in the seven habits of scarcity, not one of abundance. He didn't want to share any of his stuff. Person who has that attitude, we frown upon him. And, uh, and that's what the Gemara says here. We have this person with attitude of scarcity who wants to hold on and doesn't want to share anything. And as such, he says, I have nothing. I don't have it. I'm sorry. I can't help you. Or maybe even I'm not sorry. I just can't help you. What happens? So Hashem is going to do what? He's going to publicize and expose him. He's going to give Tzaraz to his house. And when he gives Tzaraz to his house, he's going to have to clear out all this stuff and put it out on the lawn. Then when he clears it out, it's all on the lawn. We're going to see, oh, sure enough, he has a high-end lawnmower. All the things he said he didn't have, he certainly does have, and it's going to expose him. And that's to exclude a person who actually has an attitude of abundance and sharing. A good sharer will not suffer tzaras. It's the interesting musr, the sort of like profile, because we say that tzaras is mostly for Lush and Hara. So first of all, Rav David Katz says it's not necessarily only for Lush and Hara. But besides that, the tzaras is uh, intertwined, right, with having a, sort of like an exclusive, like an antisocial attitude, right? That Lush and Hara is an antisocial behavior that's consistent with this antisocial attitude, and thus it's consistent that it would get tzaras. So it's fascinating, though, when it says, Uvash, Elohabais, it's giving you that Musashmuz embedded in that pasuk, just with the grammar. Amazing. Now the Gemara says, Can Ashul ever become Tame from Tsaras? So sure enough, we have a Brisa that specifies this exact Limur of Asher to teach you that it's only for a single owned house that gets a Tsaras. But any joint house, which Ashul is one of them, but even Barry and Andrew's house that they bought together, that can never get Saras. So the Gemara resolves it. Lokash, Harvard, Meir Harabon. This is in fact the Machlokas. The Gemara is going to give three possible Tirutsim to the steer. Again, the steer is, can a joint house get Saras or not? So one shot is, it's a Machlokas of Meir Harabon. And the Tanya, because we have a Bryce, a basic Nessus, Sheesh, but base Deer, Lachazan, 
This is what we've been discussing until now. That if you have a shul with a residence in there for the chazan, so certainly it's a residence, so that would be required. But what about a shul without a bedroom in it? So there, Rabbi Meir is mechayev a chachamim potrim. Rabbi Meir says that any shul gets a mezuzah. And chachamim say your potter. This is why we were confused yesterday, because in fact, it's a machlokas, whether a shul gets a mezuzah. So you basically would put it up without a bracha if there's no residence there. Or ve'ibais ema, unless, unless you're going to hold like Rabbi Meir. Ve'ibais ema ha'vehaarabanan, or maybe you could say even according to chachamim, who say that a shul doesn't get a mezuzah, lo kasha. Maybe the issue really is whether there's a residence there. So again, we're talking not about so much the mezuzah now, we're just bringing it into tzaras. So maybe, the first shot is, maybe a shul that has tzaras would, have, would only have tzaras, in other words, if it needs a mezuzah, right? So if it has a residence in it, or if you hold that a shul without a residence can also have a mezuzah, so then you would, could get tzaras. So those are the first two solutions. And finally, a third solution, as we finally arrive at your base of okay? An unbelievable distinction here, um, that a shul would have, would never get tzaras, but a shtibel, a shtibel could get tzaras. What's the difference between a shul and a shtibel? A shul is an urban synagogue based Jacob Shari Zion, right? Or, or uh, Shomre near me. That's a, that's a, that's a shul on other Park Heights or Green Spring Avenue. It's on a main street. It's jointly owned by all these people. Nobody lives in it really. It's not a residence. That's a shul. Stiebel, you go to Eichenstein over here. It's purposely designed in a residential area which is either the greatest thing in the world or the, the biggest ruiner of your quality of life, depending how you look at it. But whatever it is, it's a big part of that residential area and the rabbi lives inside of it. And, you know, that shul is a shtibel. And that's um, called a rural synagogue, a kfar, a shtibel. So the hava amina is that since the shtibel is more of like a, more haimish, literally, so... Beis Jacob Shari Zayin could never get Saras. That's a shul. But could be Eichelstein could get Saras. That's a shtibel. It's more of a residential thing. Amazing. The Gemara challenges it, however. Wait a minute. Beis Jacob Shari Zayin is, is, it can't get Saras. It says anything that you, this is going back to what we said before, anything that you own, that you inherit. So Beis Jacob Shari Zayin is part of Achuz Um, well, now let's talk about shuls in Yerushalayim. This gets amazing here. Let's talk about the different shuls in Israel. So it says, Achuz Aschem. Achuz Aschem etam benagayim ve'en Yerushalayim etam benagayim. This is a, an amazing brysa. Achuz Aschem means that, again, Saras, I don't even know, would, would, would uh, property in Chutzlarts get Saras? Because it says Achuz Aschem. What is Achuz Aschem? Inheritance. What is inherited? The land of Israel is inherited. So maybe it would only get saras in houses in Eretz Yisrael. It's like a, it, right? That could be. Okay, so let's assume that that's the case, that we're only talking about within the sample size of houses in Israel. So now, if you're looking about Israel, so what happened to the land of Israel? It was divided amongst the tribes, right? Nitchalka l'shvatim. Okay. What about Yerushalayim, however? There is a machlokas. Is you, we live in Maryland here. 
Now, in the state, great state of Maryland, there's a district called the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., the capital of our country. That District of Columbia, okay, it is, in fact, not part of the state of Maryland, right? It's federal, it's a federal property. It's not in, it's not considered part of the state of Maryland, but it is, in fact, physically located in the state of Maryland. Why did they do that for? Why did they have such things? That's interesting. Maybe they patented it after Yerushalayim. Because Yerushalayim, the capital of Israel, doesn't belong to any one state, right? You can't claim, right, ownership of Yerushalayim if you're part of Shevet. Now, Yerushalayim is, is unique, that the base Hamikdash itself sits on the border of two Shvatim, Binyamin and Yehuda, which we're about to discuss, okay? But be that as it may, so it's on the border, it's on the Mason-Dixon line, Lahavdil, right? And so it's, it's on the border of, let's say, Maryland and Virginia, Okay, that's where Yerushalayim sits, uh, Lahavdil. Uh, right. So, so, so Mindel in Borough Park, who's the office manager where I worked for 20 years, she's kind of right. I used to always say I live in Washington, D.C., because I know she never heard of Silver Spring. And nobody heard of Washington, D.C. there either. But Mindel is the smartest one there. She says, I know where that is. That's in Baltimore. Anyway, so she, what she means is that it's, it's in Mar- I think what she means is that it's in Maryland. And, but, and she's, she's right. Physically, it's in the state of Maryland, but it's considered its own issue, its own uh, district. So this is what's going on here now. Watch this. Achuz Aschem. So Achuz Aschem means it has to be an inheritance. What was inherited? The actual states are inherited, right? Like the Shvatim were inherited, and that land was inherited. However, the Ein Yerushalayim Natama bin Nagayim, Yerushalayim itself was not inherited. Because that was not itchalka leshvatim. That's its own district, like D.C. Lahavdil. And therefore, because it's not it's, uh, inherited, it's not a chuza. And therefore, you could say, says the Brisa, that every other house in, is, in all the rest of the land of Israel could get saras, but all the shuls and the homes inside Yerushalayim can't get saras because it's not a chuzaschem. It's not part of the inheritance. That is a collective. So that's one pshat. I'm a Rabbi Yehuda. Ani lo shamati el mikdash bilvad. He said, I hear what you're saying. That's a cool pshat. Very cool idea. But I only heard that with respect to the Beis HaMikdash itself or the site of the Beis HaMikdash that only that area doesn't get, um, that doesn't get saras. Habatek nesiyos vatsamidrashos mitamim binagayim. No, but like the, the Chor Shul and all the other shuls, the great synagogue, um, though those shuls in Yerushalayim can in fact get saras, so the whole reason this came in is to show you that the great synagogue could get saras even though it's on a main street and it's not in fact a shtibel. To try to show you that, uh, that, that B'nai Jacob Shai could in fact get saras. That's the kasha. Um, so when it says that, it, we, we say the following. That's what it sounds like in the Brisa. But the Gemara says, no, Ema Amarebi Yehuda he didn't say makom hamikdash. He said makom mekudash bilvad, which means right um, the entire Yerushalayim. That maybe he only heard it with respect to the entire uh, Yerushalayim, which would involve the Bate Midrashos and the Bate Knesios, as well as the Beis Hamikdash. And therefore, the statement that Rabbi Huda says Beis Hamikdash bilvad does not necessarily mean that the great synagogue could get saras, and therefore we can't use it as a proof that urban shuls can in fact get saras. Once we're on this topic, we're going to get into this idea of whether Yerushalayim was given as a Yerusha. But my kamiflagi says the Gemara, Tanakama savar Yerushalayim lo nitchal kaleshvatim. Rabbi Yehuda savar Yerushalayim nitchal kaleshvatim. In other words, when we say 
in the beginning, right, in this, in this b'risa, that the entire city of Yerushalayim is impervious to the residential tzaras, we say that because Yerushalayim, in fact, is not an achuza. It's not an inheritance. That's what it means. It says, lo nischalka l'shvatim. It's like Washington, D.C., Lahavdil. It's not part of any state, right? There's no um, shevet, right, tribe that can lay claim to Yerushalayim in their territory, or it, it, it's, it's in their territory physically, but they can't claim ownership of it. Rabbi Huda sovereign, Yerushalayim nischalka l'shvatim. However, Rabbi Huda holds that Yerushalayim, in fact, was split between Binyamin and Yehuda, where it, in fact, right, uh, resides. And there is a machlokas tanayim about this issue. That's follows. So, we're going to see, right, look over, do me a favor if you have the art scroll, and turn over to 12A2, next page, and look at the bottom of that page, look at that diagram. You see the Har you see the Beis HaMikdash. The gray area, amazingly enough, now we see where the boundary is. The gray area was in the area of Binyamin. And the white area was in the area of Yehuda. Isn't that amazing? That why it's like that, we're not going to talk about. That, that, how we learn that out is something that doesn't come up over here. But that, be that as made, that, that we learn out. Look at the Mizbeach in particular. Do you see that? Do you see that Mizbeach? That's the altar over there. Do you see the little white jutting out on the bottom? Look around the Mizbeach. You'll notice something fascinating. That in the gray area, the Mizbeach has this like rim, this base around it, right? That's on the northwest and on the north and due north. It has this nice little extra rim around it. And then look at the white. When you look at the south and the east, you don't see the same rim. You don't see that base. Do you see that? That is incredible. Which means what? For whatever reason, in the Binyamin portion, we have a base. In the Yehuda portion, there is no base. So whatever reason, the base, we only wanted to have it in the, in the portion of Binyamin, such that this, this chiluk, this um, distribution of where the boundary between the part of the base of Mikdash that falls into Yehuda and the part that falls into Binyamin actually dictated the actual construction uh, plans of the Mizbeach itself such that the portion that was in Binyamin doesn't look like the portion that was in Yehuda. And this is not something that anybody argues. Everybody would agree that this is what the Mizbeach looked like. So clearly, it seems that Yerushalayim and even the Beis HaMikdash was nitchalka l'shvatim, right? It's a very serious demarcation that even affects the construction of the Beis HaMikdash. Let's see how that plays into this Gemara. It's fascinating over here. It says the Gemara. Uviflukta dahani tanai. Here's the Machlokas. Titania, mahaya b'chelko shel Yehuda, so in the chelik of Yehuda, in the white part, is Harabais, Halishkos, Vazoros. As you can see, right? That's like the entranceway, basically, we'll say, coming in from the east. So we say, right? That's really the heavy stuff. All the holiest of stuff is in the chelik of Binyamin. That's where you have the, right? The ulam is the entranceway, and then you have the heichal, right? And the Kaddish Kaddashim itself. So, Uritsua says the Gemara, Haisa Yoitsa Michelko Shel Yehuda, Venichneset Lachelko Shel Binyamin. This is where the Gemara is pointing out that white little sliver that goes in on the bottom of that diagram. It calls it a Ritsua. It's that little sliver that penetrates, right? It's not a straight line. 
it's it actually is jagged over there where it penetrates a little bit into the area of that Mizbeach in the Chelek of Binyamin. Uva Hayam Mizbeach Banoyin. Wouldn't you know that's exactly the location of the Mizbeach? Uvinyamin Hatzadik. This is Binyamin, Yosef Hatzadik's brother, Binyamin Hatzadik. Uh, he was pained every day to swallow it, to swallow this extra piece of Yehuda, that this shtickle that was penetrating into his uh, territory irritated him greatly every day. Why? It says in the Pasuk, Simchas uh, Taira, right? We read Zosa uh, Bracha and we read about Binyamin and, and, and all the Brachos to all the Shvatim. And Chofef Alav Koyom, in this context, Chofef means you're like tearing your hair out. He was really upset, really upset over this. So sometimes being upset is a terrible thing, sometimes it's a good thing. This is considered a good thing because he was so desirous. Binyamin, by the way, is one of the four people we mentioned in Masech Shabbos who never sinned. He was so desirous of having the entire Mizbeach in his territory, that, and it wasn't because he was territorial, although it sounds territorial, literally. It was because of the Kedusha. There's so much here that we can't speak out. I mean, what exactly was the attitude of Binyamin towards this? Why was it? Okay, we know why he's called Binyamin Atzadik because he's one of the four people who didn't sin. Why he did, what was the psychology? Why is it a good thing? It's a, it basically comes out of a great desire to be the shaliach of the Ratzon Hashem. Anyway, Binyamin wanted to have this, he was upset by this little shtickle that took a piece of the Mizbeach over here that went to Yehuda. Venasa ushpizchan legvura. He wanted to be what? He wanted to host the Gvura, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that's what it's saying. In other words, Right, it's like if you have a hush of a guest. So let's say, let's say uh, Andrew says I'm available to, to come to, to to someone for Shabbos meals. So Goranowitz wants to have him. Barry wants to have him. I want to have him. And if Andrew can't come, I get upset. I want to host Andrew. So Kavar Yachol, right over here, we're saying the the schus of hosting Kadosh Baruch Hu is something that they could not get over. So Binyamin wanted it very much. Shenemar uvein kseifav shachem. So between his shoulders, Hashem rests, meaning that's where Binyamin wanted to be the host of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. He wanted to host it. Okay. So now we have this idea. His first son, Bella, which is like Bala, like to swallow. That was so, so this was so central, Andrew points out, to Binyamin's psyche that he named his own children uh, uh, after this idea of wanting to be able to host, right, um, to host the presence of Hashem and also alluding to the fact that he had to swallow um, part of that schus with the right penetration of a uh, piece of the territory of Yehuda in his own territory. But be that as it may, he was Zoha to the entire Heichel and Lukash Kedashim. It's no slouch, right? It's a pretty big schus in its own right. Piece of the Mizbech, he could be Mvateran, you would think. So a lot, a lot here, a lot here. Okay, so that's the idea that, that certainly would imply that the Yerushalayim is nitchalka l'shvatim, right? All this angst that Binyamin has and all the division of the Mizbeach, so certainly it was nitchalka l'shvatim. What's the hava mean that it's not? Right? So says the Gemara, no. We still have an opinion that it wasn't. How so? It's not belonging to anyone and therefore cannot be rented out to anyone. It's not yours. 
Rabbi Lazar B'Tzadok went even further. He says, Omer Aflo Mitos. You can't even rent a bed in Yerushalayim. Go tell that to all the, uh, right, all the Kolo families that are renting out their, their apartments for Sukkot for $80,000. Lefichach Oros Kadashim Therefore, all the innkeepers, right, what do they do? They forcibly take a, some sort of payment from the people who are Ola Regel, uh, right? Because the fact of the matter is, if you live in Yerushalayim, this is not clearly how, not how we paskin. If you live in Yerushalayim and you rent out your hotel room or your house, you're not allowed to charge. And therefore, the only way you could really make anything out of it and not lose your shirt over hosting, because don't forget, at the time of the Ali, of the Ali Regal, is going to be a, a big crowds. So, uh, they can, all, all they can do is basically, like, keep some of the property of this, uh, of the people, of the host, of the guests that came by. To which, Amar Abaye, Ishmami, no, we learned from this interesting halacha, If you're a guest at someone's house, leave something nice. Right, uh, as a token of your appreciation for your stay, right? So, right, you can leave uh, USB cords. Uh, I do it, I always do that, you know, uh, because I'm very generous that way. You can leave all your USB cords um, wherever you go as a token of your appreciation of the hospitality. This is, of course, when you get the uh, complimentary hospitality, especially. Um, it doesn't say uh, what the halacha is. Uh, um, um, with regards to if you're paying for the hotel room, how many bars of soap and bathrobes you're allowed to take is not is not pointed out here. But it is talking about. In fact, you can leave uh, this derech eretz anyway. Fine. So now we're talking about. So so, so this is a machlokas. Now, uh, Rabbi Leibowitz quotes Rav Shechter, who quotes the Rav, that explains the dichotomy here. Tzvei dinim. Rav Salavechik says, basically, it's, and once you hear it, it'll clarify all of these sugyas, which is as follows, that certainly with respect to ownership, right, it, nobody owned it. And that's why you have these halachas of you can't rent it out, because it's not owned by anybody. But with respect to territory, certainly it's physically within the boundaries of, the, of those shvatim. So you could, you could, after you could say both, in other words, right, that Mindel's right. That Silver Spring is in Maryland. Washington DC is physically in the state of Maryland. And so you can say, you could point to it, right? But it's owned by the federal government. So it's not owned and governed by the state of Maryland, but it is physically located in the state of Maryland. So Lahavdil, the base of Mikdash was located between, on the boundary of the territory of Binyamin and Yehuda. But that doesn't mean that it was owned by Binyamin and Yehuda. That just means that that's where it's physically situated, and that's what we're talking about. Fine. Okay. So now this actually says So now we're going back to this. Can get la It says inheritance. So you have to actually conquer it in order for it to get. It really very sounds like in Chutzlarts you're not going to get this. So even if they already, so now we're just going to get uh, granular here. Even if you already, what, conquered the land, but didn't divide it yet, that's not a chuzah yet. And even chilkul shvatim, lo chilkul beisavos. So let's say you gave it out to the shvatim and they all know where the boundaries are. But nobody got this house yet. In other words, the house itself and specifically wasn't apportioned to any specific individual. Or chilkul beisavos ve'ain kol echad makir shalom. Or maybe they already apportioned it, but they didn't announce it yet. So nobody really knows who will, you know, it's not registered in the local municipality yet. So, I mean, nine, how would we know? In other words, at what point can the house already get Saras? 
uh, do we have to have it already registered in the tabu, as they say in Israel, in the in the municipality, and then only then can it get saras? Like, at what stage of inheritance does it have to be in? So it says the Gemara, Talmud Loma Uva Shelo Habayis. The one whom house is his shall come. Misha miyuchad lo. Yatsu elu shein miyuchadim lo. It has to be houses that are specifically his. So we see that saras doesn't apply unless it's already registered in the, in the, in the, uh, in the tabu. You have to show this is, you know, right? This is Andrew's house. And those, sim, so similarly, in a shul, right? It's not going to get saras. Not just a shul. But even a shtibel would not get saras. So even Eichenstein's, uh, this, that's in Chutzlarts anyways, but all these shtiblach are not going to get saras if it's a joint ownership. So long as it's a joint ownership and you can't identify the owner of the house, it's not going to get saras. So, uh, um, so that's why the Gemara says, El machvarta meikara. Right? So the clearest resolution is what we said before. The first two solutions of, of, of reading the psukim, uh, that it's either talking about uh, that we, that according to the, right, according to the Shita, that it doesn't require a mezuzah, or according to the Shita, right, that it has a residence in it. In those cases, perhaps, but the bottom line is that in order for a house to get saras, it needs to be attributable to one person. So now, twelve, uh, two dots, twelve lines up, we're back to the Mishnah. We prepared another coin. Pshita. It's Pasha, if the coin Gadol became disqualified on Yom Kippur morning, before he brought the Korban Tamid. So now we're going to get, like, right, we knew theoretically all along that we have the backup coin. But now we're going to get practical here. Like, how is this going to, pl- how is this going to look? How is this going to play out? Let's say the coin Gadol became possible right, uh, right on Yom Kippur morning. Now we're in real trouble. Like, how are we going to bring in the understudy here? So let's see. Well, it's, it's pretty simple as long as he gets this psul before the Tamit Shel Shachar of Yom Kippur morning. Because then, what do you do? Mechanchen also besamit Shel Shachar. Because the whole idea of the question over here is like this. You have an understudy. Fine. It, anytime the psul happens to the Kohen Gadol prior to Yom Kippur, then you can anoint him with the anointing oil, you get the understudy ready, you give him all the begadim, and off you go. Okay. But what if you already had Kol Nidre the night before, and now it's Yom Kippur morning, and a psal happens, Khalila, in the middle of Yom Kippur. So, how are you going to anoint, you can't anoint the, coin, the new coin Gadol on Yom Kippur um, with the anointing oil, right? With the Shemana Mishcha. Because you're not allowed to, what? Shmear him on Yom Kippur. So the question is, how is he going to assume the position of the Kohen Gadol without having previously been anointed? Okay? That's the question. So let's see. So if it happens before, I'll say a little bit outside, that doing the Avoda itself and wearing the Big Day Kahuna can in fact be the anointing process. That's basically where we're going to go here. So let's see. Pshita, Irab Absul Kodem Tamit Shel Shachar, if he becomes puzzled, Yom Kippur morning, right before he brings the Tamsha Shachar, Shachar. So that's what it means. That doing the Avoda with the Big Dikahuna instead uh, can, can be in the stead of the Shemana Mishcha, and that's going to be his anointment. So that'll work. But what happens if it happens after the Tamsha Shachar? How are we going to anoint this Kohen Gadol? Right? Now, what makes this interesting is as follows. That had the Kohen Gadol worn all the eight big day kahuna that are so amazing and part of being a Kohen Gadol, then that would be an easy, 
easy peasy as well. You just dress him up like the coin goddle, like like the kids dress up on Purim, and you wear that amazing getup, and boom, you're the coin goddle. The problem is on Yom Kippur, the coin goddle wears the same four begadim as the coin hedyot. Uh, one day of the year, you're not wearing big day kahuna, and therefore there's no way to anoint you. Like to put on the coin goddle costume uh, and to put, do the avodah would be easy, except for on Yom Kippur you can't do it. And since you can't do the Shem and Mishcha, and you can't put on the big day coin gadol, how are you anointing this guy? So Amar Rav Adabar Hava Be'avnet, that even though it looks the same, and that the coin gadol in Yom Kippur costume looks a lot like a coin head yoke costume, the actual composition of the belt is the key here. He's wearing a different belt as the coin gadol in Yom Kippur than he would as a coin head yoke. The composition is going to be um, pure linen as opposed to wool and linen. Whoa, and that's how you're mechanechim. So the Gemara, honey, Chalamandamar of Nato Shalkoin Gadol's, they have Nato Shalkoin Hedyot. Well, that's, that's going to be an issue here. If you hold that the same belt that the Coin Gadol wore all year round is the same as the belt of an ordinary coin, but it is only the, again, that would mean, that's okay, because that means that Coin Gadol and ordinary coin wear the same belt all year round. That's okay because the coin Gadol on Yom Kippur wears a different belt. So according to that, Manda Amar, that makes sense because by putting on the belt of the coin Gadol of Yom Kippur, you're actually showing that you're wearing something else. Which is to say that the, um, the belt, the, the Shatnei's woolen linen belt of the coin Gadol is the same all year round and on Yom Kippur. And therefore, it's, it's the same, it, it, and, and therefore it's not the same as that of the ordinary coin uh, gadol, which is pure linen, right? In other words, that the one on Yom Kippur everyone holds was pure linen. So according to the second Manda Amar, the one on Yom Kippur was the same as the one of the regular coin, uh, coin right? In other words, again, a regular coin all year round wears pure linen belt. And the coin gadol, wears all year round, according to this Manda Amar, a shot in his belt. However, on Yom Kippur, everybody holds that he wears a pure linen belt. So according to that Manda Amar, on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol wears the same pure linen belt that the regular Kohanim, the Kohen Hedyot, are wearing all year round. Which means that there's no difference between the outfit of the Kohen Hedyot and the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. Which is a problem because if you're wearing the same exact clothes, Right? You are the understudy for the coin gadol. You're still considered a coin hedgeout. The coin gadol just became puzzle. You're wearing your coin hedgeout clothes and you don't even have to change out of your clothes to do the avoda. That's a problem because we can't be mechanach you. You need to have chinuch, right? You need to have something that distinguishes you that now you are in fact the coin gadol. To which Amar Abaye says, Love shmono mahapech bitsinora. He says, uh, you know what? Before this is what you do. Before you continue with the Yom Kippur, with the Yom Kippur service, then just put on the Shemona Begadim of a regular Kohen Gadol and turn parts of the Korban Tumid over with a fork, like, like a barbecue, just like turn it over to the other side to help it burn. And so you've put on the Shemona Begadim, which is amazing because normally you don't do that in Yom Kippur. You put on the Shemona Begadim and then you turn it over so you did a little bit something, right? And then... You are, in fact, now we know you're the coin gadol. Now you could change back into the coin gadol Yom Kippur clothes. 
This is consistent with what Ravuna said, because he said, Zar Sharfak Misa. Because in fact, a Zar, a non Kohen, who did this turning over the barbecue of the, uh, of that carbon Tamid, is Chayav Misa because it shows it's a real legit Avoda. So what we're doing is we're showing that by turning it over, you're doing a real Avoda. But Papa Amar, as we at least arrive at Yubezim and Bez, that even without clothing, avodasa mechancha, you don't have to go into the eight begadim. Just do that avoda, and that itself, without the clothing, is going to invest him with the powers that, that, uh, invested in us to, uh, make him, announce him as a coin gadol. And so basically, at the end, it says, milotanya, did we not learn in a brisa, if Papa, in fact, has a source for himself, that once Moshe Rabbeinu made all the kalim for the mishkan, that their use in itself uh, am- amounts to an anointment. That here too, just by the Kohen Gadol doing the service, that in fact invests him with the power, and that is how we go into the Kohen Gadol. The rest of the Amud talks about this, these clothing of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. Everybody have a good Shabbos.